The Cultist presents Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, you know how all your life, how you've just really wanted to be a farmer, tend to the land, grow your own food, and really just feel good about what you're putting into your body? But then, during your one and only shot to be the farmer you know you can be, otherwise known as the month-long house swap deal you've worked out in a pre-internet era across the country with a family of total strangers, your farmer dreams are literally pissed all over by a son that keeps giving the dining room table some arguably impressive golden showers, and the locals are all raging vegetarians who thus need to feed on your poisoned corpse for sustenance. Yeah, don't worry, we've all been there. Bungie's been there. And that's really what today's film is all about. That universal story of a family's demise at the hands of the world's most basest form of evil, vegetarians. So please sit back and join us as we travel through the magical goblin-infested land that is Claudio Fergasso's 1990 film, Troll 2. Brought to you by Magic Stones of Magic, The Cannibal Truth of Veganism, Homoerotic Undertones, Dead White Knight Complex Grandfathers, The One True Porn Hub Corn Hub, Not a Single Goddamn Troll, and The One True Savior, Baloney. And of course, this episode is brought to you by the safe word, method acting. Anything to add, Giggles? Soundbite from intro! You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Thanks! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion! Anja! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. Hi, Benji. Hello, London. Once again, we meet here. Meeting you is cruel enough as it is. And now we get into one of the cruelest films out there, by some standards, I suppose, to someone as cruel to me it is. London, how did we find this film? All right. I think this film kind of just found us in the way that Troll 2 does. I cannot remember the moment that I first discovered Troll 2. I wish I had a story, but I feel that Troll 2 has just always been there. Uh, yeah, I think since 1990, it's just always been there. Admittedly, I don't think I knew about this film at all prior to the internet age. And I say internet age because I feel like one of the earliest video clips that went around, this may have been even prior to YouTube, like something you may have seen on Ebound's world, was just that clip that we have in our intro of the kid just going, they're eating her! And then they're going to eat me. Oh, my God. <laughs> A.K.A. the best line in cinematic history. That's why it may have been one of those that, yeah, lines like that uh, were often up there. Yeah, I I saw this movie as a kid. Oh, OK. Well, it's like I always heard like a lot of people saw it like on HBO or home video or something like that. Uh, like it would just kind of creep up every now and then. For me, like the movie I saw way too many times on HBO as a kid was Short Circuit 2. I don't know why that movie was always on, but there you go. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't have an origin story of Troll 2. It has just always been there, always been a part of me, and thus why we pitched it for this podcast, because 
it, it is a crowd pleaser, but oh, yeah. I was watching this movie with someone who is a complete troll to virgin. They were seeing it for the first time. Now that's and special. It was special. And so I, I kind of had a piece of paper there. And instead of taking my notes, I took his notes. Oh. Where, like, just, just vocalize it all. Just give me everything you got. Okay. So I'll kind of I'll kind of mix in a little bit of stuff. So, uh, yeah, why don't we just jump right in? What's the best thing about this film? The best thing about this film is how quickly you know the kind of shit that you're getting into. I say this because first shot of the movie is in this forest, and we also get this voiceover from the grandfather, who we meet, meet him later, but we just hear, it was a foggy day that made Peter lose his tracks. And as soon as you see this forest, you're like, it's not foggy. It is not foggy at all. There is like a someone's burning leaves a little off camera, but there's no fog. What? What are you talking about? This movie just like immediately, you know, oh, I'm watching something incredibly incompetent. It doesn't wait around. You know, something like the room, the intros, maybe those are a little strange, but you know, you have like some nice shots of San Francisco or you're like, some like atmospheric music establishing okay. shot or two you know okay for, yeah like someone knew what a movie was supposed to be that's fine okay great but no troll 2 right out the gate you know like oh okay they oh oh okay yeah and see i think the best thing about this movie is that someone knew exactly what they wanted it to be <laughs> And they delivered. That is on a... every level. This movie is pure joy. Yeah. <laughs> wrapped in green frosting and spirulina. I mean, as we learn, and I don't know when we want to talk about this, but like in the documentary about this movie, Best Worst Movie from 2009, we learned that the director and the writer of the film felt they were making something important. They were making a film that mattered, man. I mean, they weren't wrong. <laughs> That is often something that is said of Troll 2, is that what makes it so great is its earnesty. Yes. This is a film in which everyone involved was trying their best to make something serious and raw and real, and there's just nothing about it in its final product that is serious, wrong, or raw, or real. There's lots that's wrong. And what is the worst thing about this movie? Uh, you know, it could have tightened up the outing a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> Some of the transition shots, yeah, you don't know. need a little bark. <laughs> the one critique about this movie, the only critique, is that there is nothing to critique about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is perfect. So uh, let's talk about why. So we already mentioned that the film opens up in the middle of a forest mm -hmm. in some dude dressed as some sort of Bavarian goblin yeah. lad. Yeah. And uh, he's walking through a magical forest in magical. the fog, not fog. And he's going to come across a woman. And this woman's makeup is another thing that's just going to set the scene. Because I think there's supposed to be freckles that are yeah. on her face. It looks like someone took a brown magic marker and just like dotted her, her cheeks a little bit. It seemed so odd to do that. Like in the narration, because this is like a story that the grandfather is telling his son. The parallels with the princess bride cannot be ignored. This is true. Yeah. And he says, like, she was the most beautiful young lady he had ever seen. And the woman they have doing this role is a conventionally attractive woman. Why add magic marker freckles to her? What's going on there? And maybe this is just something that didn't translate from Italian society, like... Because of 
cinema verite, Ben. Cinema verite. <laughs> this is truth in cinema, okay? You just don't understand. So, yeah, we have this, like, weird makeup choice happening with this woman. And then we're going to learn that she is, in fact, a goblin. And another really great thing, once again, kind of like the fog, is that the grandfather is going to say the word goblin... Goblin. At least three to seven times Goblin. before the title Troll 2 Goblin. appears <laughs> over his dialogue as he's saying the word Goblin. Super great, because another well-known thing about the movie Troll 2 is that it is not, in fact, two or second or a sequel to anything, and there are no trolls. Apparently, this movie was originally just called Goblin, but the distributors thought, okay, let's call it Troll 2, Trolls in the movie Troll do kind of resemble like what they're doing with the goblins here. So someone just thought, okay, we're going to call it Troll 2. People will see the trailer and they'll think that those are trolls. And this has something to do with that movie from 1986. But you're trying to like tie it into a movie, like a movie that wasn't a huge hit or anything from four years prior. Strange decision, but it's how we got this title. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a very strange history when it comes to the naming of these films, the sequencing of sort of Troll 2 with other movies. Mm -hmm. And so, as you mentioned, yeah, we're going to sort of market it initially as a sequel, of which it wasn't intended to be, to this 1986 horror movie. And then later, other films are going to come out that claim to also be sequels or sort of trilogies with oh, troll 2 and so there was a movie that came out also in 1990 called the crawlers and it is known as troll 3 for some <laughs> reason it's not directed by the same guy it's directed by somebody completely different although it is produced by joe damato and so it seems like a lot of joe damato's stuff kind of gets looped in with kind of troll 2 stuff and yet there are also no trolls in Troll two or in yeah. Troll three, nor are there goblins. There oh. are mutated plants from a nearby like nuclear waste dump that sure. start eating yeah. people. Yeah. You know yeah. as they do. Yeah. Yeah. And then Troll four and or Troll three. So this also sometimes gets the name Troll three is something called Quest for the Mighty Sword, and that is part of another Joe D'Amato film series called the. Tor film series. Oh, Ator the Mighty Eagle, the Fighting Eagle. Yeah. No, those were uh, the. Th <laughs> You're the... familiar with these films. Okay. I am because one of those films, uh, At Ator the Fighting Eagle or Ator the, the Blade, something like that, uh, was on Mr. Science Theater back in the day. The, it was weirdly re edited and called The Cave Dwellers uh because at one point Ator fights some people who live in caves and like they're kind of cavemen like you know 1 million BC like looking cavemen hmm. it's weird but yes i know of those movies okay i'm kind of weirdly happy that uh, you are aware of these movies quest for the mighty sword is apparently the ator 3 even though it's actually the fourth one but the third one <laughs> was discredited and disowned by Joe D'Amato because he did not direct the third one and so this fourth one actually becomes 
the official third one, and is also sometimes called Troll 3, also, as far as I know, has no trolls in it, and if we're going sequentially with Troll 2 and the Crawlers, should really be Troll 4. So this is this is the kind of thing that we oh get here God. with Troll 2. Start the Olympics, because we got the deep dive oh, going on here. And then one more thing, just oh. to really contextualize oh all this. So in 2019, just last year... <laughs> There is another kind of unofficial sequel to Troll 2 <laughs> in which the guy who's going to play the father in our Troll 2, George Hardy's the actor and Michael Waits is the character, yeah. is going to show up in this movie. It's a German film, I believe. What? As his character, Michael Waits. And so that's what's going to kind of, you know, give it this unofficial sequel quality because his character from Troll 2 is in it. Uh, under con I'm looking at it now. Under Yep, and it's called Under Control. But what? the troll part is T-R-O-L-L, often all capitalized, which is an amazing title. It's like I watched the trailer to it and uh, it's uh, it's not up to snuff. They're they're uh, trying too hard to be they, they're not earnest in the way that troll 2 is oh, earnest yeah. so. the, the the i'm looking at the the poster now like they're doing like the stranger things fonts with it uh yeah so back to uh back to our troll 2 oh right the movie we're talking about yeah that has no trolls but has some goblins that are going to meet this woman in goblins the woods. joshua goblins were there and they're gonna feed her some stuff and Him. it's poison but it's also purifying. So it's a mm -hmm. purifying poison that is going to cleanse her body to prepare it for organic vegetarians. <laughs> yeah, it is like the nastiest eat. looking green goop ever. I don't know what they use for that, but uh, it had to be disgusting. I've had to like, you know, have like fake blood drooling out of my mouth for movies before. And it's never good. And I imagine that this food tasted equally as terrible yeah i can't imagine that there was a lot of production money put into craft services <sighs> on or off screen but if you're sort of sitting there watching this movie and asking but why in a rural farming society in which they grow crops do they need to expend all this energy to transform people into crops in order to consume them instead of just eating the crops you're not alone. This will not be the only time you ask this question, but you're just going to have to embrace the premise. <laughs> <laughs> just just let let Claudio take you for the ride, man. Just let it happen. Because apparently people are what they want to eat, but they don't want to eat meat, so they got to be turned into plants first. Oh, God. At any rate, uh, this is all, and this is a story, like we said, that the grandfather is telling his son Joshua. Joshua, the little kid, is kind of confused. He's like, wait, wait, Grandpa, you said they, the trolls do eat humans as vegetables. Don't you mean they did? What kind of story is this? The, the trolls are real, Joshua. They're real and they're still around. And then yeah, this kid's freaking out a little bit. Mom comes in. Joshua, what are you doing? Oh, Mom, Grandpa was just telling me. Oh, pull out. The chair is empty. Twist. Grandpa's dead. Although the chair is still rocking. Yeah. So the, the chair is still rocking, which leads into the fact that this ghost is the biggest asshole ever. I'll get into that more. But <laughs> this scene is also where Grandpa's we like, you know, so mom asshole. comes over, sits down and tells Joshua, you need to stop like thinking about your grandfather so much, which is kind of an odd thing to tell 
a potentially still grieving child. But this is also where we get one of the first lines of the movie that to me is a great example of the fact that this script was clearly written by someone whose English was not their first language. I'm just going to read the quote. Grandpa Seth has been gone for more than six months now. You were at the funeral, and I know it was very difficult for you. It was also very difficult for your father, and for Holly, and for me, his daughter. And so you have like this very odd just collection of words that is kind of forming a sentence. And it is sadly being read by a woman. I, I don't. I hate to critique performances in this movie because it's not like they were getting good direction or had good dialogue to be given with. But even then, uh, what's your name, Deborah? Oh, Margo. Margo. Margo Prey. Who? Oh boy, when we meet her in that documentary, god damn. But she, I don't know how she could have done a good job with any dialogue that she was ever given, no matter how good the direction. I just don't think she was much of an actress. But that kind of comes down to the fact that this movie was filmed in Utah and just used local Utah actors. I, I feel like I'm just like needlessly dumping on the actors of Utah. <laughs> but I just don't think you're going to get the cream of the crop if you're pulling from rural Utah. Yeah, so the production history of this film is going to be really interesting. We have an Italian director, Claudio Fragasso, and his wife, who wrote the screenplay, and he is going to come to America, bring his entire solely Italian-speaking crew with him yeah. to film a movie in the middle of the Utah desert with an all-exclusively English-speaking cast. Fun experiment in cinematic history. Sure, sure, sure. As Worked out perfectly, you know, um, as we can tell from this film. And it's going to get some great lines. And apparently a lot of the actors, when they got the scripts, some of them didn't even know exactly what a line even meant. <laughs> and they would try to sort of rework the line a little bit. And then the director would get kind of upset and say, no, no, you have to say it this way. And the the teenagers on this film in particular have later sort of commented that at the time they were trying to say, well, I mean, an American teenager wouldn't say this. And then this Italian director, who's probably a 40, 50 year old man is saying, no, no, this is what American teenagers would say. And I can imagine what like it was like to have to try and argue with this guy, because when we meet him in the documentary, God, this man is a belligerent asshole. He's just yeah, like, he's not fun. He's just a needlessly cruel man to the to everyone. But I will also point out that the this is another unifying factor written uh, by someone who did not speak English as a first language. And the lines must be read verbatim. This is another thing that that is also we has in common with Birdemic and The Room. Uh, Birdemic written by a Korean American, James Nguyen, uh, who, you know, he wrote the dialogue and the actor is just like, OK, yeah, we're just going to say what you wrote here. Uh, you appear to know what you're doing. And Tung Wazo wrote the room. And well, they yeah, we have those, uh, you know, keep your stupid comments in your pocket, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's American. That's American expression. Everyone says keep your stupid comments in pockets where where these stupid comments are copped in pocket, you know, I mean, I would never question Tommy Wiseau's <laughs> knowledge of humanity, but 
What's going to be really great about having this sort of Italian lens on the quote-unquote American experience is that we get to see what apparently is the American experience. And one of those things is going to be this kid's bedroom. So this (laughs) is actually one of the things that uh, the person who is watching this movie with me, Uh the first thing that he noticed and got really excited by was this kid's bedroom because it has these sort of sports banners yeah, yeah it has like all a, over the place yeah <laughs> and apparently the theme is just that this kid likes sports as a general concept because uh he's like pointing out the different banners and they had up there it just seemed like they just sort of found whatever they could and tacked yeah. it up on the walls. i recognized uh daryl strawberry's uh name on there he was <laughs> <laughs> yep, they had a, a Daryl Strawberry one. They had an Oakland A's, a Cincinnati Reds, a New York Mets. <laughs> and then they, they take a break from baseball and go to the Utah Jazz and the Patriot, or no, the Detroit Pistons. Uh-huh. And then they go back to a New York Mets, some Chicago Cubs, and then we get the Chicago Bears and then San Francisco 49ers. So we get a little football mixed in there. Yeah. And then what's going to get really great during this scene, too, is that the banner... One of them, I think it's the Detroit Piston one, is under the curtain a little bit. And so just a little segment is showing. And then it's going to cut back and the entire thing is going to be in the frame from under the curtain. And now the person who I was watching this with gets really excited by this continuity error. Right? (laughs) He's going to stop. He's going to pause it. And he points at the screen and just says, that just moved a whole bunch. And I was just like, oh, honey, Buckle <laughs> if, <up>. that, <laughs> if that is a continuity error that has got you going, just you wait. Oh. Just you wait. It was so great. It was so great watching this with the Troll 2 virgin. Okay. The, the uh, surprise on his face that the banner had moved. And I'm like, just wait until they entirely switch cars on their drive over yeah. to Tennessee through the uh, the desert plains of oh boy. the South. Yeah. Now. After the mother comes in and tells the boy to not care about his dead grandfather, she goes off down the hall, and this is where we meet the sister, Holly. But we see her, and this is like in my notes, it just I wrote down sweaty neck. Because we have not one but two shots. Like we see her neck. She's like on a bench press, just lifting a rather minuscule amount of weight. It just seems like a very little weight that she's uh, lifting. And we have two close-ups of her neck that is very sweaty. And it's like, did you not get enough coverage of the rest of her? Is the neck does the neck mean something to Italians that it doesn't? Maybe to it was us? a stunt lifter. I do we know that it was her lifting the weight? Although to be fair, she was doing a lot of reps. So Well, I'll get into like how many because <laughs> <laughs> going by the continuity of this movie, she had to be like doing two sets of a thousand reps. I did actually really like that they had the intro of the girl bench pressing in her room because I feel like this is a fairly common, almost iconic 1980s film image for teenage men to be in their room sort of doing their bench press or to even have a bench press in her room. And so that it was the female teen heroine of our story that was sort of getting her bench press on, I actually found really sort of refreshing and lovely. Although that is also cut around shots of her room that, like her brother's sports, is just going to be apparently for her 
boys, but <laughs> actors, Hollywood actors. We get Tom Cruise. We oh, yeah. get Johnny Depp. It's just going to be a montage, sort of like the sports banners, but of popular, hot, sort of teen bop actors at the time young woman young lady do you have like a movie that you enjoy or a band or a, a music that you like no boys boys i like boys, boys. all the boys uh, yeah like okay fine mother sees this she goes downstairs to the living room to talk to her husband and this is where we meet michael waits this, this is also where we kind of like began to get the thrust of the movie that this family is going to go and live in a small town for a month because reasons i don't know i because was michael waits wants to be a farmer it's his dream ben. It's his dream. <laughs> that's all he's ever wanted in life which seems like an obtainable life goal but somehow he has not obtained it so he is doing a month-long house swap program with someone in tennessee so apparently they live in utah because the plates on their cars are, yeah, are from utah, utah. They never say, like, where they live. Like, they never say a town or a state. But, yeah, mm -hmm. the, their van has Utah plates. So we're assuming that they're driving from Utah to Tennessee, which is mm -hmm. at least a 20-hour drive, if not more I mean, than it's that. a it's a haul. Yeah. And I don't know why they chose Tennessee, that the writers chose. Like, no, Tennessee is where yes. the Goblin Kingdom would be. I mean, Tennessee is not a particularly farming-heavy community, first of all, not nah. compared to anywhere else. I mean, the Midwest has a lot more farming than Tennessee does. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to drive to Tennessee, in which we kind of mostly assume is supposed to be Tennessee, because I think at one point there is a, a sign that says Tennessee, and that the soundtrack labels the song as tennessee roads so mm, okay. apparently they're driving on tennessee roads but it is also very clear that they have not left utah because on the side of these tennessee roads are just these long sort of spreads of rocks and desert yeah. <laughs> cacti no there's nothing like this in tennessee anywhere uh, i mean you, you may or you may or may not live in tennessee uh, so, yeah, I, I currently live in Nashville, so... Yeah, so you would know that... there's no desert or rocky mountains in Tennessee. That was actually the other... The, the troll to virgin uh, kind of turned to me and said, Ah, the desert plains of Tennessee. <laughs> You've been in Tennessee about a year now. How many sandy desertscapes have you seen? <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's one right out the window. No, there's, there's a lot of trees in Tennessee. There's a lot of hills, but there's, uh, there's not so many deserts. Oh, so. boy. I just wrote down, a month? Who the hell would want to go to a small town for that long? Well, I guess if you're going to drive 20 hours to get there guess, and farm man. something. You're not fucking around. You're like, no, we are, we're going to this town for a month. Which, that, that is the kind of trip you come back from and your wife says, like, we need a divorce. This is, what the hell do we just do? Well, I'm just not even sure how much you could physically farm in a month, right? It's take some time for stuff to grow yeah. so you would need to like i was i was about to say like you know vacate a long vacation to me is like a week two weeks and they're going to do a month which is really long and even then at that long of a time it's not enough time to like learn the farming world or become a farmer you you're just like well, water the crops for a month maybe that is the purpose of 
the real life version of this sort of exchange, if this even exists. I had never heard of any exchange program like this prior to seeing this movie, so who knows? So apparently, organized home exchanges originated in 1953 with the creation of Intervac International, which was sort of founded by a group of European teachers looking to travel internationally economically during their summer breaks. So this was a European thing initially, so perhaps it was a little bit more well-known and popular in Italy. That makes sense. Although apparently also that same year, there was another teacher, David Ostroff, who created a home exchange network called Vacation Exchange Club in New York City. So there was a U.S. equivalent of that. But uh, to be fair, home exchange did not take off until 1992 when HomeExchange.com began on the internet. So this movie is worlds ahead of its time, or we'll say two to five years ahead right, of its time. Ahead of the curve. Go, go yeah. it. Uh, prior to them leaving, though, I do have to, we have to bring up this scene. The girl, the daughter, is visited by her boyfriend. So this is where we get the intro to Elliot, is it? I think Elliot is the boyfriend. Yeah, the boyfriend. And this whole thing is so strange to me because this is where we get the intro that she has apparently given him an ultimatum already that he needs to either be with her or be with his friends, but not both, which is so odd to me. Dude spends too much time with his bros. Oh, yeah. Just what? All your friends are just jerks. So he climbs into her room after already like scaring the kid. He scares Joshua and climbs up to his window by mistake. And Joshua, I guess, thinks he's a goblin. Because now he's like hiding under his covers going like, goblins aren't real, goblins aren't real. It's a fair mistake. Yeah. Elliot, the boyfriend, goes to the other window, climbs in and jumps and scares Holly. And then we get this exchange and my God, the stuff of legend. Elliot, what kind of idiotic joke is this? You scared the shit out of me. I'm the victim of nocturnal rupture. I have to release my lowest instincts with the woman. Holly punches Elliot in the groin. Release your instincts in the bathroom. Are you nuts? You're trying to turn me into a homo? Wouldn't be too hard. If my father discovers you here, he'd cut off your little nuts and eat them. He can't stand you. Typical American teenager dialogue. I, I just want to unpack a few things here with this exchange. Yes. Okay, so... So, first of all, Elliot's a rapist. Uh, that That is like what we're given here. He's like, I'm horny, so I have to sneak into a woman's room. Jesus well, Christ, man. He what? hasn't Call her. gone through with it yet. So if anything, it's really conspiracy to rape. His intentions were clear. Okay. She punches him in, in the balls. And he is upset by this. His reaction to being punched in the balls is to show concern that she might be trying to make him a gay man. Which, okay, the writer of this movie clearly had bad opinions about vegetarians. I am horrified to think what she would, what she would have to say about members of the LGBT scene. Yeah, although there is going to be some really great homoerotic undertones later, both with him and his friends, but then also with this girl, this daughter, and the druid witch. So they ah, apparently yeah, don't understand really very, what queerness is. I think all very unintentional. 
I do want to say, however, though, that I am the victim of nocturnal rapture might be my favorite statement in the entire film. <laughs> it sounds like a band name. Ladies and gentlemen, now performing ahead of Gwar, nocturnal rapture. Fuck yeah. No, I mean, teenage me or preteen me, what I wouldn't have done for either a young boy or girl to come to my window and deliver the line <laughs> i am the victim of nocturnal rapture <laughs> like right. yes this is the kind of language time that, travelers uh, now vampire you know. lit is built off of if you find yourself traveling back in time <laughs> the outside way to London's seduce window, me. <laughs> this is your ticket in yeah nocturnal rapture i dig it and also okay and just the fact that this daughter is like, my father will castrate you and then digest your testicles is what she's saying, because he can't stand you. Like, OK, you know, look, kid, maybe your dad doesn't like your boyfriend all that much. Castration is, you know, that escalated quickly. How do we get there? Whatever. I wonder if there's some sort of deeper symbolic undercurrent to the sprinklings of cannibalism that we're already setting up here within this narrative so her father's response his first initial instinct would be to cannibalize uh, coincidence probably the movie asks us who's the real goblin here really <laughs> exactly <laughs> homophobia is probably the answer so that happens and then the next day the, the boyfriend says like no i want to come on this trip with you and somehow that's okay with everybody involved. I mean, this guy doesn't appear to have parents. Just so long as this kid doesn't bring his friends. Because his friends are just apparently the worst. Even though they're not. They're just guys. They're the best thing about this movie. They are. They're cool kids. I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> it's just odd. So he was supposed to meet them early. And they left. And uh, I do get like, I love this exchange where the father says, you know, we could have waited, but your bow didn't show up in time. He's not my bow, Dad. He's my boyfriend. What? That, that's what a, a bow is. That's what that... Whatever. <laughs> I just... <laughs> okay, so Troll 2 Virgin had a reaction to that, too. Really? More from a time period stance, not a... Right. Necessarily a Troll 2 decision stance, but he was curious as to whether or not bow was a popular term at the time in the 1990s, or if this was another sort of Italianism, mm -hmm. sort of Europeanism coming in at an earlier time than bow is necessarily part of the popular lexicon within popular American culture. And I couldn't really come up with an answer to that yeah. exactly. I, I didn't really look it up because I sort of remember bow being a thing in the Heather's years, but I don't know if I'm actually just sort of anachronistically now slotting that into my memory. I wouldn't say it was a huge thing in a, in the American lexicon, but whether or not it was, because one cannot watch this film as a yardstick of like what American slang was back then, because this movie is removed from just common American tongue. But what Bo meant, I, I don't understand a world in which Bo does not mean boyfriend. They're like, what else Bo could mean besides boyfriend? It is just another one of the many golden nuggets that this, this dialogue gives us throughout the movie. And we're dwelling on a lot of these, but the whole movie is like this. The whole movie is full of moments like that. It demands so you to strange. just savor it like a fine, fine wine <laughs> that keeps getting better with age. <laughs> That's aging like milk. <laughs> it curdles, oh. but it's still compelling. 
Um, one thing about this band scene that I is like, this is a legitimate compliment I have to give for the, the director and the cinematographer is that like they do understand what certain camera angles mean. Because on this trip, the son begins to have a nightmare about turning into a plant and his family saying like, yeah, the goblins are going to eat you, Joshua. And as soon as the sequence starts, we're going to dramatic close-ups, very wide angles on all the actors' faces. Their faces are all lit, high contrast lighting. And so you immediately know like, okay, this is something's wrong or the kid's dreaming. I think a lesser, it seems, if it sounds strange to say a lesser director, and no, I really shouldn't, you know, I'm not going to insult Claudio too much here because the guy's made a whole bunch of other movies. He knows what he's doing. A lesser director would not think to do that and just film the dream sequence as the same as everything else, and it wouldn't be clear what was going on from a tonal perspective. But, you know, Claudio knows how to work the camera, so we get that. So, like, that's a legit compliment to give to the the making of this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of cool sort of camera angle shots in here, Mm -hmm. a lot of extreme angles that sort of work for the scene that they're capturing. Although on the flip side, they're going to pull into this town in the bright broad daylight (laughs) a scene later and our our father george hardy is going to remark that even though there's no one around that's understandable because everyone is probably asleep at this time of night yeah and i'm like this is not alaska in july they're our suns that set in tennessee this is a hint to like what they could control what they had control over in the movie. In this dream sequence in the van, they can control where the camera goes and a little bit of the lighting, but they couldn't control when they were going to film certain moments because behind the scenes fact, this was shot in three weeks. So very quickly filmed movie. If you have to film your shots, you don't have time to wait for the night or they could have waited for night, but they didn't have the lights for it because there aren't many night scenes in this movie. There are very few and far between here. This is mostly an outdoor day filmed movie. So they're using natural light as much as possible. So they're just like, fuck it. Just film him, stay the line, moving on, next shot. Which is all fair and fine and good, except for one thing they did have control over is whether or not they had an actor deliver the line. (laughs) It's the middle of the night (laughs) while they are filming. In fact, not in the middle of the night. That that line could have been changed could to have, something else. We could yeah. have had a different reason that the people were not in the square in the middle of the day, other than they're probably sleeping at this late hour. But that choice was not made, and this movie is all the better for it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're going to have sort of driven all this sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, full 22 hours from Utah to Tennessee. And we're then going to find, with a very jarring cut, that... Her boyfriend and his friends have followed the family along because he was supposed to be there at 9 a.m. or something to get in the car with yeah. them. And he missed his sort of call by by half an hour at least. They, they waited around for him for 30 minutes. And then the father's like, nope, don't like this kid anyway. We're going. <laughs> and so he gets into his little RV with his friends and also makes the 22-hour trip in pursuit of his lady. So let it not be questioned what he will do for the nocturnal rapture (laughs) of his soul. Gotta release my lowest instincts. But uh, yeah, his friends are just kind of coming along with him. Uh, At one point in the drive, they drive by Grandpa, who is only visible to Joshua. 
And this ties in with what I was like, I wrote down to myself. Grandpa is the biggest asshole ghost of all time, because over and over again in this movie, we will see him make the deliberate choice to only appear to Joshua. Then anyway, the grandpa tells the kid, no, save them, go away, you're driving into troll territory, or you're driving into goblin territory. Yeah, there's no trolls here. The, the, the parents come back to pick up the kid, they're like, Joshua, what are you doing? Joshua looks back up, the grandpa has changed into some hitchhiker who's like, hey kid, you're gonna give me a ride or not? Jesus, grandpa, just stay grandpa five seconds so they can see the kid's not crazy. Whatever. Well, so do you think that the grandfather, like, possessed this, like, homeless hobo on the side of the road? Or do you think he's just mystically transforming his ghostly aesthetic into another person? The possession makes more sense because the grandfather, like, he knows the, the van's going by, so he just puts himself into this hobo's body long enough for Joshua to come talk to him and then, like, leaves as soon as the parents are coming by because he's an, he's an asshole ghost. And leaving this this guy like, oh, hey, kid, you get me here, right? What's going on here, kid? I mean, we are going to find that the grandfather is sort of canonically in hell, right? So, I mean, the movie is aware well, he's an asshole. He's not in hell. He's not. That's OK. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So, yeah. But I mean, there's there's we can we can work with that. We'll work with yeah, I mean, the, the grandfather no has some issues, although yeah. so in the car as well, one of the best moments for this mother is that she's going to turn around to her son and just say, sing me that song uh, I love. Yeah, that song. <laughs> you I know, love. that song, oh, that yeah. song I love. What song is that? <laughs> Tell us, Joshua. And then he's just going to start singing. Row, row, row your boat. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and that song I love. Yeah, you know, that's the that one. old classic, that chestnut of melodic brilliance. And then they're just going to start kind of singing it. Doing the round or whatever it's in called. In the rounds. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, this is this is the song that the uh, Italian director uh, picked as, you know, the classic This is the trip. classic American song. All the Americans love this song. They're going to sing it a song now. And I'm like, you guys are driving into the state that hosts the music capital <laughs> of the country, <laughs> has a great rich folk song history, and this is what we're going with. Gotcha. Okay, dear God, can we get to Nilbog? We have to get to Nilbog or we're going to be here forever. <laughs> we're going to be Yes, we, we, can, we can fast forward to Nilbog. Okay. okay, so we're in Nilbog. They arrive. They arrive at a creepy family that's like a mirror image of them. Father, mother teenage daughter young boy are waiting for them and they're like you're late uh, well, well we got off to a late start you see uh and as they are pulling away the young boy that's leaving throws a ball at joshua and it has green writing around it that says eat before we eat you so i'm just thinking okay kid look young goblin you're bad at this because you're giving the game away with something like that. You don't need, don't tell them that. It's just like, yeah, we're fucking goblins. We're going to eat you. Like, what? No, no, you're horrible. Yeah, just, just wait for him to eat. I mean, we're going to have moments like this that if they had been patient, if they had just waited a little bit longer, these guys would get hungry eventually. Oh. You don't have to creep them into it. People eat. <sighs> okay, so they get inside. And they head in, and immediately they see that there is a, there's food laid out for them on the table already. And this is the first appearance of green food that we see again and again throughout the movie. 
And it's one of those things that makes you ask yourself, who would eat that? That looks terrible because all the food has this like weird neon green paste over it that no one yes. would. Yes. That's ill, gross. Uh, <laughs> it's a little strange. It's like someone took green cake frosting and just smeared it on top of corn on the cob and a, and a donuts or and a sandwich. It's so strange. Well, it's kind of like those green eggs and ham festivals that they throw sometimes okay, in honor yeah. of Dr. Seuss, and they just dye the eggs and ham green. Yeah. Like, this is the most unappetizing thing <laughs> oh, no, right. I have ever seen on a plate. Uh, yeah. But they, they sit down to eat, and the asshole grandfather ghost appears outside uh, and tells Joshua, Joshua, you gotta stop them. But how, granddad? How? Grandfather snaps his fingers. And he says, you've got 30 seconds. You gotta stop them. And again, Grandpa, you can stop time? What the hell, man? Use that this some grandpa better way. Grandpa is like a wee Diablo, I'm oh, telling you. Yeah. Now, yeah, he's, he's a time stopper. This is not 30 seconds. And I had to stop because, I'm like, one, it's definitely not. It doesn't feel like 30 seconds. I timed it. It's a minute and 20 seconds that this kid is given. Time moves differently in the goblin yes. realm. The, in the, one of the more infamous moments in this movie, the kid, like, walks over to the table, looks at them, all about to take a bite of the green food that will presumably turn them into organic vegetable people that the goblins want to eat, as established by the story about the fable about Peter in the very beginning of the movie. And he stands up on the table and just starts saying, I must do it! I must do it! I must! Unzips his pants. Cut to the next scene where they're throwing all the food away. So we are meant to believe that he pissed on all the food. And yeah, they're talking about the scent of it. And... Yeah, it stinks. He pissed on the food. Here's the thing about this. When time is stopped, Grandfather stops time right as everyone is about to take a bite of the food. If the food had just been on the table and he pissed on it, okay, that's one thing. But everyone has the food up to their mouths. So... What they should be saying is like, oh, he peed on the food. No, he peed on us. He pissed <laughs> on all of us, on our faces, where we had food. And this is where we now get to one of the other very famous scenes in this movie. The father is taking the kid through the hallway. And he says like, do you see the signs in these doors? Stomp, 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 stomp. Do you know what that is? Stomp, 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 stomp. Turn hospitality. <laughs> He's going to flip this kid down on the bed and deliver the line in which Benji's already said the, that is hospitality, and I will not let you piss on hospitality. <laughs> Can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. And there we go. And so he starts just kind of like fucking with his belt a little bit. And the kid's like, oh, no, what are you going to do to me, dad? And he's like, I'm tightening my belt by one notch to stave off the hunger pains yeah he's he's fucking with his belt joshua's like what are you gonna do to me daddy and because legitimately you do think oh my god i think we're about to see this kid get whipped with a belt holy shit yeah it's a little traumatizing the guy plays is very intimidating so you're like whoa I, we're gonna see something and you've got the mother down the stairs that she's like don't hurt him yeah yeah she says i don't hit him that implies that that's an issue in this family so Holy shit, you know, this this father beats his children. This shit's about to get real. Yeah. 
So then he says this line, and this is, again, a great example of something written by an Italian translated awkwardly into English. What are you going to do to me, Daddy? Tighten my belt by one loop so I don't feel hunger pains, and your sister and mother will have to do likewise. Okay, Joshua, you want to get rough with me? You want to show me that you don't like the choice of this house for our vacation by going on a hunger strike? Well, I'll accept the challenge. But just remember, when I was your age, I really did suffer from hunger. We'll see who gets through this. But just remember, I've got more practice than you. I'll see you tomorrow. And this is where Troll, ver- or t- Troll 2 version is like, well, it worked for Gandhi. Fair. It's fair. Oh, my so, God. Oh. This is one of those, like, incidences where it's kind of like, is this a, well, back in my day story? Yeah. Or does the director think that in 1990, this guy, father who's in his... 40s would have lived through some sort of 1930s Great Depression, or I'm just I'm not sure how we're supposed to just take it for granted that this guy, who seems to like come from an upper middle class family in Utah, had lived through the, the hungering hard times. But apparently he has, and in the documentary, the 2009 documentary, yes. these two actors will recreate this scene years later yes when this child is now himself in his 30s so he's getting carried over the shoulder again by his sort of actor father and is gonna get like kind of plopped on the bed Uh. and he's gonna look at him he's like what are you gonna do to me daddy and i'm like that works a little bit for me (laughs) (laughs) that's working right there i think the way he says in the documentary like i think the girl michael paul stevenson uh who's the kid in the the movie and also uh, directed the documentary Best Worst Movie. I think he got it a little bit. He realized it as soon as he said it because he yeah. kind of cracks up a yeah. little bit. And I was like, yeah, that's right. You just brought it. <laughs> that worked. Goddamn, did that work. So okay. um, now I'm never going to be able to watch that scene again in the same light. But Nor should you. Yeah, that scene plays out. They're going to go on a hunger strike. And in a world in which this movie could have been something else there is something a little bit anxiety inducing and horrific about the idea of one's food being poisoned or something that they can't actually eat in a town where they can't trust Mm -hmm. any of the sustenance so it's kind of a little bit like a a nightmare on elm street kind of premise in which at some point in nightmare on elm street you're going to have to go to sleep, right? right? It's a human bodily need. And so we get that with Troll 2 a little bit, or the attempts to to say, these people are human, they're going to eventually have to eat. And yet the movie's never quite going to push on that premise. No, they they are very, they seem very nonchalant. Later on, the, the daughter says like, I need to eat something. I've been fasting for two days. Which I would, I hear, I'm like, two days without food? Holy shit, kid. I know, I'd be passed out. Yeah, <laughs> and they're walking around like it's nothing. Yeah, so they could have perhaps done something where that pressure to find something to consume escalates, or they have that moment where they have to truly decide, how do I want to die? Do yeah. I want to die by starvation, or do I want to die being consumed by a bunch of angry little pseudo-troll people? I mean, that's a decision that all of us at some point usually have to answer for ourselves. And this movie doesn't, though. It will never answer that question. You don't feed the trolls. true universal query. You just don't. Well, I guess, so how about you? Would you rather die of starvation or die being eaten by a goblin? If 
it's an ultimatum. And inevitably, I am either going to die by starvation or by goblin consuming my now plant-like body. Chlorophyll. My new chlorophyll essence. body. Uh, I'll go with the latter, uh, because at least that's going to be quicker. Starvation, yeah. that's that's weeks of, of torment and long-suffering that I would not wish on my worst enemy. So. Yeah, well, you know I hate to agree with you, but, I mean, I'm going to have to agree with you on this one, that uh, death by troll consumption or pseudo-troll consumption yeah. does just seem like a more humane way to die. That's the way to do it, yeah. Um, but to your point, and the same way I had to agree with you on this, but a note I wrote to myself towards the very beginning of the movie, when we have that scene between the grandfather and the son, I said to myself, you know, this actually could be done well in the right hands. This premise of a grandfather reading his grandson a story only for the, the grandson to remember, like, all oh, right, grandpa's dead. That, that could be done well. I've actually seen plays done like that where the opening scene is a as a daughter talking to her father and like you're really trying to hash out what's happening in her life and the father just says aren't you forgetting something and the daughter just says oh right you've been dead for two weeks yeah you've got some problems honey is this proof yeah you know okay <laughs> god of course you fucking know what proof is yeah i've seen proof yeah the both movie the play the and play? the movie actually both Okay, well, there you go. I have seen both. We've got a little cinema of cruelty and theater of cruelty You know, there in the background. Get them, but I wouldn't call proof theater of cruelty, but that's no. neither here nor there. I mean, nobody would, but no. it is the theater. Yes. So, if I went to see it with you, that would be cruel. Yeah, that's what I live for. We get a sort of interesting shot of the house that they're in, and they actually have th this goblin family apparently are proud owners of Skeletor's toy castle off in the corner of the living room. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a pretty big toy. And, uh, uh, it, it, it makes got, it into a few you've frames. You've got that 65 so. inch television, so you got. You know, yeah, I've got a better view in noticing all the, the really great yeah. unintentional Easter egg <laughs> stuff of the 1980s in this film. But yeah, so then we're going to cut back to the friends and the friends that the girl has been complaining about up until now that this boyfriend of hers spends too much time with her friends. We're going to cut to that trailer and they're all going to be naked in a bed together. Oh, it's yeah. Great. And actually just two of them. But still, that's, that's something. It's it's like the velvet goldmine quote. Okay, so just because you see two naked people lying in bed together doesn't necessarily prove that sex was involved. It does, however, make for a very strong case. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we have a little bit of that here. In my headcanon, those boys are fucking and nobody can take that away from me. They cannot. Because they are naked in a bed together in an RV. I think anyone who has a mature uh, viewpoint on sexuality could say, these boys, they could be fucking, doesn't negate the fact that they're also going for women too. You can do both. You can oh, yeah, do no, both. Totally. I just, these guys, to me, are one of the best things about this movie. And I really just like the idea that they might have finally gotten some before they die. Yeah. <laughs> that's thank that's God really for that. all I want for them. One of them heads out and is just walking to town. And then suddenly he sees a young woman running away, scared, torn, clothes, tattered, blood in her face, I believe. Perhaps some green blood, I forget. But she is clearly scared out of her mind. And he just begins running after her like, hey, hey, what's going on? Hey, hey, what are you doing? What are you running from? She is screaming, ah, ah, looking behind her. 
he's in her line of sight, so she looks behind her, screams, keeps running. He just keeps chasing her, which I'm like, this is, boy, this is not healthy uh, <laughs> for them, him to be doing that. Jeez. It's a little rapey. Yeah. <laughs> Once again. I, it, it goes from a little rapey to, like, where es it escalates because he finally catches up with her, grabs her, knocks her to the ground, and it's just like, what are you doing? Hey, who are you? What are you doing? Hey, you're cute. And she's screaming out like, are are you a monster? Are you are you human? He says, yeah, yeah, human. I'm really human. You want you want to see how human I am? Okay, give her a second to calm down before whipping out your fucking trousers, snake kid. This is a traumatized woman who has clearly been running from some sort of captor or predator in the woods. And this guy she doesn't know is just going to join in the chase and then tackle her into the leaves and then offer to have sex with her. That is what is happening in this scene. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. It's making some choices. Well, luckily, he recognizes that there are monsters. There's something is dangerous in the woods, aside from him trying to get his dick out. And so they begin to walk away and they walk up to what is very clearly an old church that they filmed the exterior on, walk inside the old church into what is obviously a set. So this is where we meet Credence Leonora Gilgood, uh, played by Deborah Reed, who just never really did any other acting outside of this movie. And good God. <laughs> the, I wrote down, this performance is the worst performance in the movie, but this performance is also the best performance in the movie. She is giving it her all, and by all, I mean every single muscle and molecule <laughs> in her body is locked in and doing something. In, in my time in acting, uh, whenever I was uh, like kind of studying acting, one of the notes, the more honest notes I got uh, from a from a uh, acting teacher was they said like Ben, you're doing you're doing five things when you only need to do one thing. And a lot of act like little people when they start acting. Story of Ben's yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of actors will try to do too much because they want to, you know, have a presence in the scene and on stage, and it's more than necessary and it's just distracting when you do that. I mean, you can walk into a room and just say, oh, "Hello, everyone. How are you?" But if you walk into a room and say, "Hello, uh, everyone. How are you?" All that, that's too much. That's doing too much. This woman, like every single line she has is so drawn out because she is just going all over the place with it. When she introduces herself, she could just say, my name is Credence Leonora Gilgood. No, she says, my name is Credence Leonora Gilgood. And she uh, it's like if you pictured a waveform and and the graphed her voice and her performance it would just be up down up down up down up down like peaking valley peaks valleys all over the place because she is just doing the craziest shit when she plays this role i like that you said that you used to do this too <laughs> We have, yes, Benji's female counterpart on screen, <laughs> Credence. She is pretty great. She's just definitely a, a fun, fun time. And she apparently is a druidic witch 
that comes from a long line of people from the stone of Stonehenge. Yes. So apparently amongst the stone rocks in Stonehenge, there's one particular one that is magic. It is not stipulated which one is the magic stone of magic at Stonehenge, only that that is from whence her people came. And now she takes care of all of her goblin children, which is another question I had. So do we think that this woman, because we will see her later kind of regain some years and things. So do we just think she's some sort of really ancient life form who's actually physically birthed generations of goblins? Or does she create them like some sort of golem out of the clay or are these a separate sort of race of creatures that just flock to her and worship her like some sort of godly queen i don't think that she gave birth to the goblins but that she is an ancient form that maintains the goblins and helps create she herself does not birth goblins so to speak but does help the goblins make more goblins uh, by whatever means of procreation the goblins do she facilitates by pulling them out of the stone or something yeah, this this is not going to be answered no, and no. if she is a little bit of sort of a deity for them that doesn't quite fit either because these goblins are going to have their own church and their own preacher so they have <laughs> some sort of religious system <laughs> and it's not gathering around her so I'm I'm kind of a little confused were, by her physical role within this goblin community. They refer to her as their queen. It's kind of hard to catch. I didn't notice this until like looking at the quotes for the movie. If you look at the quotes on IMDb, it's spelled out phonetically. So it's our queen is calling us. And so these guys from the forest are going to run to the queen's abode and yep. they are going to enter her church, cottage, castle, laboratory and be forced fed some green stuff by our, our queen, our goblin queen. Mm -hmm. The girl will drink it and she will start to apparently sweat, but more yep. look like she's disintegrating and just sort of orifice spitting some spirulina type of liquid and then she's just going to dissolve into mm -hmm. sort of a chloroform like or chlorophyll like substance i guess chloroform is kind of different and the goblins are going to descend and just start consuming her body and while this is happening the boy uh, arnold is his name he finds that he's paralyzed and can't move and realizes that what happened to her is slowly happening to him too and this is where we get the line. They're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. Oh my god. And scene. There's a this is also like right after the scene is like where the sister does this weird dance. And it's an, another what will become an iconic moment for her to do this weird little thing with her hands where she circles her thumb and forefinger around her eyes and creates these kind of little hand glasses. Mm -hmm. And 
it's a look, as yeah. is the fact that she's wearing some sort of Minnie Mouse sweatshirt or something. I can't remember exactly what she's wearing. Uh, yeah. but uh, She does this a few times looking directly at the camera, like right down the barrel in an odd way, but looking at the camera, looking for, to somebody for help, like, what the hell am I doing? If you're going to dance from the depths of your soul, you're going to have to break the fourth wall to do it. It's what you do. This is like she begins to like write a letter to her boyfriend reiterating you need to leave your friends or we cannot be together. And again, I'm just like, why? Why does he have to leave us? Why are you so possessive? You crazy bitch. Because <laughs> it can be only her. Only her. She must be life. the sole focus of his attentions. Oh, God. Uh, this is where another moment happens that cements my theory that this the grandpa ghost is the biggest asshole ever because he shows up in the mirror in her room, scares the shit out of her. So we know that other people besides Joshua can see the grandpa ghost. She runs out. She's like, oh, my God, grandpa appeared in my mirror. The father comes in. He's like, what are you talking about? What mirror? That mirror over there looks at it. There is no one but us in that mirror. You are seeing things. Have you been smoking pot again? That reefer. That reefer, that, yeah. Uh, the bud. Oh, God. So they, they leave. Jo Joshua volunteers to take her room since she's scared of it. And she's like, oh, thanks, little brother. Joshua takes over that room. And the grandfather appears in the mirror again. And Joshua's like, Grandpa, that was the wrong room. Here we have this asshole that can stop time. Yeah. He can possess people on the side of highways. He can travel interdimensionally between the realms of the living and the dead. And yet, for some reason, he got the room wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just... Throwing that out there. This is where the kid asks him, like, and this is like one of those moments of writers having to explain away a problem where the Joshua asks his grandfather, grandfather, why don't you talk to my parents? He says, your mother never listens to me. Dude, you're a floating ghost head. That's going to get attention. If there's a single person for which a floating ghost head might be just overlooked or ignored entirely... It would be the mother in this <laughs> film because this mother, yeah, this mother, I had forgotten. So I had seen this movie a bunch of times. And yet for some reason, the mother st just stuck out to me the most throughout the entire thing. Like her performance, there was something about her, which we later kind of contextualize a little bit with the documentary that yeah. might actually just be kind of who she is as a person. But that was haunting and chilling to like a bone depth level and it was as if you had taken if one were to take every single drug that has ever been mentioned in a brett easton ellis novel <laughs> and then just kind of mixed together into a little cocktail and consumed in full that would be the mother in this film like she just seemed like she was on every kind yeah. of middle to upper class quote-unquote wife drug from the 1980s like it was a weird mix of valium and percocet and lithium and quaaludes that kind of strange mood stabilizer that would leave her eyes wide but the pupils very constricted it was yeah her eyes are terrifying in this movie in ways that is not they're not intentional at all in the documentary when we meet her when they're going around trying to find cast members you know 20 years after the fact when they look her up and go to their her house and the this sequence in the documentary, I don't know if this was intentional, but it plays out 
to suspense and a shocking reveal. Because when they knock on the door, the camera is set up very far away, zoomed in, so it's very obvious we're not going to see who answers the door. We just see grown-up kid and, you know, his, you know, movie dad knock on the door and say, like, hey, 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 Margo, hey, it's us. Oh, oh, hey, guys. Like, she slowly remembers. Cut to inside Margo's apartment. But it cuts to a close-up of George saying, like, wow, it's just so cool. So, you know, great to see you after all these years. Cut to Margo and holy shit, this woman looks Fucking insane. Not to belittle the woman's emotional and mental struggles and turmoil, but yeah, it's it's kind of heartbreaking and fascinating at the same time. And it's yeah, it's very jarring uh, when we meet her. And what stuck out to me was that she has like makeup just caked on her face. Like she clearly, when she answered the door, did not have makeup on. When they took the cameras inside to begin interviewing her while they were setting up, she very obviously put on a lot of mascara and, you know, lipstick and what have you. But her she didn't do anything to her hair and her hair is just like a crazy ratty mess. You know, she didn't pull it back, didn't tie back nothing, just crazy, wild, almost mad scientist hair. I respect that in a woman. <laughs> As one could tell when they see my hair, but <laughs> yeah, and the really sad thing too is that she seemed to express that she had been recently taking a break from acting, that she doesn't have an agent right now and uh, hasn't, you know, gone to an audition in about a year. She has only ever done one other movie that was also kind of a direct-to-TV, sort of low-budget film the same year as Troll 2. She has not acted since. Right. So it was sort of weird to kind of hear her sort of express that she was still uh, sort of pursuing this <laughs> as a career choice. I'm sorry. You doing okay over there? I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at her IMDB page at her credits, and it does list the other movie at gunpoint, uh, which was like the other movie she did in 1990. It says, self, one credit, best worst movie. And then, <laughs> this is what made me laugh. It says, Soundtrack, one credit. Best worst movie. Performer, row, row, row your boat. <laughs> yes! <laughs> They're going to do it again. Yeah, They're going to the do it again. They re, they, like a, a recurring theme of the documentary is them recreating scenes from the movie just for fun, which is a very adorable part of the movie. Like when they were, like you said, like when the kid and George Hardy are redoing the hunger pain scene, it's that's awesome. And so, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they recreate the row, row, row your boat <laughs> That got her a soundtrack listing. She's on a soundtrack to this. Good for her. (laughs) Yeah, and the other thing about her was her conviction with the movie. So you will learn later that there are two camps, as we expected, right? The the Americans that kind of realized that they were in a very special kind of film and had no idea what was going on. But then the Italians that will, particularly the director... Claudio Fragasso sticks by this film as a serious work of cinema. He wasn't like Tommy Wiseau, where a couple years after sort of cult midnight screenings and stuff decided that he was going to admit, oh yeah, it was always a comedy. Oh, I always or... make bad movie. No, it's it's black comedy. I make a funny movie. No, it's not drama. No. Yeah, when for like the first, you know, two years, he was like, no, this is, this is the new Tennessee Williams. So, Claudio Fragasso is stuck to yeah. his, 
he... yeah sort of viewpoint that this is this is a good film margo's right there with him mm-hmm. so when they ask her about the film right she will speak very earnestly about how it is one of the more quality films that she has ever seen because it's a true real connectable <laughs> story <laughs> about you know cannibal vegetarian trolls in southern utah but yeah it was kind of it it was a little bit touching and a little bit heartbreaking to see how you know like truly earnest she still was about this film herself and i kind of loved that about her Mm -hmm. but yeah we can we can circle back around to margo here but the overall point of margo and her character that she is going to play here is that this woman looks like she might you know frequently see some some ghosts and spirits and i don't necessarily know if seeing the grandfather in the mirror now would sway her one way or the other she'd probably just think like oh another vision in this narrative better go downstairs and not make food because we don't have any but that's not that big a deal to us for some reason yeah because we're not all that hungry three days in we've only been fasting for two days what's another Although we don't really know how many days it's been, because once again, there are no night shots. No, so. there are <laughs> not until like the very end of the movie. Uh, yeah, no, no night shots, nothing like that. So for all we know, this is just a really long day. Yeah, the the continuity of time, you're just you're not gonna get in this film. You don't need time it has in this no film. Meeting. Okay? Don't. Yeah, but we don't. It's the Goblin Realm. Like there's there's no meaning of goblin time realm, in the Goblin yeah. Realm. That's been um, established. Okay, now we cut. We have this. We go back to the trailer. Or to the RV where the friends are, and my note was: Do they not care that their friend is missing? What the hell? This is this is where we're like we see the scene of the two guys sleeping in the bed, and then the third friend is like, "There's no milk. There's no food. Didn't anyone bring supplies? No. Well, now I have to go shopping. How am I supposed to do that? Take some money out of the group fund. So apparently they have a group fund. Yeah, and apparently they've already done this like 22, 23 hour drive without need of sustenance because this is the first time the the sustenance needs are coming up i think that would have come up at some point they stop at a truck stop and get some food whatever it's uh, whatever 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 kid goes into town um i forget what the 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 friend with the yellow shirt yeah he really just needs to be called yellow shirt it's fine yeah yellow shirt because as we learned the documentary this guy had a shirt that had a logo on it halfway through filming lost the shirt and his Talk to the costume department like, okay, can I, I, do you have another yellow shirt with a logo on it? They're like, no, just go buy a yellow shirt. He, he has to buy his own yellow shirt. So like the shirt doesn't match throughout the movie. And he's like, I have to buy it? And they're yeah. like, yeah, go buy it. Yeah, you shirt. have to buy the shirt. Come on, kid. You never done a movie before? What's your deal? <laughs> we don't have PAs here. We don't have a wardrobe department. Yeah, he's, Get out of here. He's jogging into town, gets picked up by a sheriff. He's like, I'm hungry. And the sheriff hands him this sandwich in like saran wrap that has like that green frosting shit on it. And the kid's like, oh, yeah, thanks. Opens it up. He starts eating. He's like, well, yeah, this is really good. Thanks. And it gets dropped off in town. And like one of the funnier moments <laughs> to me was at, as he is like leaving the car, he asks the sheriff, oh, sheriff, what do the girls do for fun in this town? Girls. <laughs> so apparently no girls yeah <laughs> does that mean there's just like no female goblins hmm. is that the take no we see or... we see women like in the church scene later on that we'll get to i mean we don't know how they self-identify uh, so... yeah who knows this is true maybe the the goblins when they disguise themselves as human 
they assume like the look that matches whatever numbers of looks they feel like they need to have. But when they are goblins, they are just they have no gender. Yeah, or maybe age either, because yeah. we've got some children and some adults, but are they really children and adults in their goblin forms? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But this kid walks into a drugstore to get some food, and this is where we meet like one of the more iconic characters from the film, even though he's like barely in the movie at all. He's credited just as drugstore owner, played by Don Packard. And one of the crazier revelations from Best Worst Movie was that this actor was in and out of a mental institution during the making of this film. And he admits, like, I really had no idea what was going on. No, I mean, no one had any idea what was going on in the movie. But this guy was saying, I didn't know what was really happening around me. I was told <laughs> in my, reality. Yeah, I was told what my lines were, but I wasn't acting. Like, what you see is how demented I really was at the time. Yeah, I mean, the, that checks out. Yeah. And he's also going to talk about in the documentary how in these upcoming scenes where he has to, at some point, kind of try to force feed some <laughs> of the green stuff to the kid. Yeah. Right? He's like, there was this kid there and I just hated him. He was the worst little kid. And I just really, I, I really physically wanted to hurt him. So I'm just, I'm getting this green stuff and I'm just trying to like, you know, like shove him up, shove it in there. And, I, and the kid he's talking about is the guy who's currently interviewing him behind the camera i don't I think he knew he obviously did not know that and it was kind of all the, the better for it which is like i hated this fucking kid that was on set and i mean the guy doesn't say like yeah that was me but the audience oh. is sitting there going like so, yeah that's, okay, that's so him the in this scene where we meet the drugstore played by self-admittedly mentally deranged don packard a part that confused me he says do you have any coffee Coffee! There's no coffee in Nilbog! That's the devil's drink! Which is odd to me, because do you have any eggs? Or, like, do you, do you have any, like, you know, meat or anything like that? No, we're all vegetarians here! Okay, they're all vegetarians. Fine, that's one thing. But what's wrong with coffee to a vegetarian? Yeah, I was... I mean, I didn't know if that was, like, maybe... Fergasso's takeaway from like filming in very Mormon heavy territory in Utah because oh. they don't drink caffeine or coffee oh, because wow. it's. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. So that was the only thing that I could come up with. Maybe was, he's like. That a, yeah, he just a like. Nod he, doesn't see, or? he doesn't see the Utah natives drinking coffee. So he just figured, oh, yeah, that's just, that's what Americans do. They that's don't an drink. American thing. But is, that doesn't make sense no. because then he, he would. He would say the kid doesn't drink coffee. He wouldn't have the kid asking for coffee in the other, you know, this culture that is the othered kind of situation. Yeah, I just meant, like, did he come across that practice yeah. and, like, work it into the I, film? I because guess he found so. it interesting. Like, like, I don't know. So to, the, so to the writers of this film, Mormon equals goblin. Oh, well, well there's, there's a hot take statement. Like, oh, this, oh, wow. This, this movie just got even, yeah, more... More political than just attacking <laughs> the vegetarians. So, yeah, but I mean, like, it is a weird thing where if you have, I mean, this is this is going to be a very stereotype-based statement, but an Italian saying that coffee is the devil's drink, like, that doesn't make any sense. That, like, yeah. I mean, espresso is a very big, you know, coffee show and espresso a, and caffeine are big Italian, Italian staples. Or a vegetarian that doesn't drink coffee. That does not exist. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it has some, like, vegans that drink green tea or whatever, but the caffeine is never the problem, yeah. right, with the vegetarians. No, so, yeah, no, have... so. And it's definitely not a vegan angle, because right after saying, like, no, we don't have coffee or meat, here, have some milk. Yeah, I was just trying to think of, like, any reference point for coffee being the devil's drink, and the closest <laughs> thing I could come to was, like, Mormon practices of avoiding caffeine, but... Fair enough. I don't know. <laughs> That's all I got. They're in southern Utah, and I don't know. Okay. Well, the kid, uh, uh, whatever, the yellow shirt takes the coffee. He heads off. The father and the son have gone into town to try and find food. They get to a general store, and it says, Clothes will return 20 minutes after the sermon. And so the father just is resigned to sit down and apparently read a book on vegetables that he has. Because he wants to be a farmer. Wants to be it's a his lifelong dream. The kid, like, is standing by the, the truck that they pulled up in, looks in the side rearview mirror, and sees that the town sign behind them backwards. And this is where he has the revelation, the twist of this movie, that Neilbog is goblet spilled backwards. Exactly, exactly. We are in the land of the goblins. This is oh, the only place oh, they are. Boy. Yeah. And, in Neobog. Um, side, okay, side note here. When we have this revelation, like, the camera goes super close on this kid's face, which it has done throughout the movie. And I always hate saying this about child actors, but this is one ugly little kid. Oh, <laughs> poor kid. I Well, here's the twist, though. When we see him again, the documentary, the director, when he's directing the documentary, Best Worst Movie, He's a really good-looking guy. He's he got, did. He did grow up he, great. Yeah, that which is odd. Normally, child actors are dealt a very rough hand where they're really cute kids, and then mm-hmm. they grow up, and oh, 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 I'm sorry. Your face didn't change. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, oh, that's too bad. But it was kind of flip when this guy is like, he has this weird scrunchy face, and his teeth are weird looking and he's like horribly freckled <laughs> and he grows up and pretty good looking guy. So yeah, he does all right. Yeah. Did all right for himself. Well, well, you know, good, good job of being handsome. Uh, my Michael Paul Stevenson. But the other thing about this kid's performance throughout this movie is that, I mean, even he's going to remark in the documentary that he was horrified by his performance, Yeah, but I've, I was a, a kid around this time, period. I saw a lot of kid movies in the nineties. Mm-hmm. He is no better or worse than I would say about 90% of any child actor in any 90s child movie. Oh, I like, agree he, with that. He did fine. I, I mean, I just generally hate movies where it focuses on the kids because it's very rare that an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old can do anything that's convincing or with conviction, and they shouldn't be expected to. They're kids. Don't. Yeah, I mean, occasionally you have these sort of creepy little alien children that are amazing that just get these chilling adult performances. Mm-hmm. I think Dakota Fanning sort of stands out more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Where she was just sort of, yeah, always this sort of ancient uh, being in this tiny body. But unless, yeah, unless you put him with some sort of director like Spielberg, who can generally kind of coax performances out of things during that time period. Mm-hmm. This this was pretty standard fare, so I'm, yeah. I felt the, the, the guy was a little hard on himself. So, I mean, like, the kid is going to go and witness a sort of sermon and find out that they are indeed goblins, yeah, which, which he knew already. The goblin preacher 
Goblin Preacher is preaching to the Goblin Choir because he's just saying, like, meat is evil. I'm like, I, I think they already knew that guy, but go ahead, you know. Yeah, but it wasn't even just that the meat was evil. What becomes kind of interesting as a message is that the processed meat that people are eating and consuming is contaminating the human meat that the goblins are trying to eat. So it's this apparently idea that people are the goblin sustenance, but they are no longer organic sources of meat because they're putting so much shit into their bodies. And this is apparently the people's fault because they should be doing better because the goblins need to eat them. <laughs> it's on How you guys. How dare they it's on not all eat the food that makes it easy for us to eat them? Yeah, and so basically what this witch is doing is she's making some kind of poisonous purifying concoction that will help purify the blood in the system of all of these processed meat-eating assholes so that their body is good to eat again. And uh, yeah, that, that's going to be their deal. And so the kid's going to kind of freak out about this. He's going to run to his dad. At some point, they're going to kind of return to the homestead where all of these individuals are going to show up at their home to throw them some sort of potluck party of green frosting food. And they're going to square dance around them and they're going to chant at them to eat stuff. And the dad is gonna sit there being like yeah southern hospitality right which he's gonna say in like an alabama accent yeah. because this guy just has like an alabama accent throughout the entire thing which <laughs> turns out like is his accent i don't know where he's from initially but i guess alabama was just living so, in Utah yeah like he's, he's a southern guy so apparently which is even kind of weirder that he, he but i guess he didn't have the communication abilities to maybe express that we're doing a whole blend of uh different types of southern and western <laughs> cultures in this goblin town but they're goblins so maybe that's just their way and the important thing that's going to happen while this party is going down and they're trying to sort of force feed their future food is that the final friend i guess like the, the guy in the yellow shirt is eventually going to you know like find his friend transformed into a tree yeah. and try to drag him off but you know that's neither here nor there mm. the other friend is going to get a visit paid to him by the witch woman who has prayed to the magic stone to be completely transformed into a younger, hotter, yeah. a little less overacting version of herself. She's going to show up at this guy's RV with a cob of corn. Oh, yeah. Dressed all sexy and some silk and some and stockings it, it leads with that cob of corn. A very, a very unintentionally kinky moment when she comes into the trailer the kid like falls back on the bed she puts a leg up on it pulls her dress up to reveal like she has stockings on and then hands him a cob of corn now if you don't know what's going to happen next you can only assume she is she has just opened her legs up to him and hands him this somewhat phallic object you're like what the f fuck does she want this kid to do with that cob of corn uh see i was yeah of course my mind goes to his orifices well, but you know teach their own tomato, tomato. Um, yeah but i mean like we think they're gonna do something yeah with this corn and oh do they do something they... with this corn <laughs> it is a sexual thing to do with the corn just not the way that i that my perverted mind was thinking where they just kind of make out with the corn as a buffer between their mouths like they're both gnawing on the corn 
facing each other. It's like if they were just open mouth kissing, but you just stuck the corn cob between them. It's so great. And so the kid is going to mention, like, yeah, I like popcorn. And she's like, well, then all we need to do is make it hot. Yeah. And they're going to just start gnawing on this, this cob of corn and popcorns just and gonna like, spring out around them and the, the music in that scene is just they terrible in it. too like the music throughout the movie i know that it's it's all recorded on the synthesizer it's like a korg synth piece or whatever and like apparently some of the tracks a korg hear, m1 synthesizer yeah and apparently some of the tracks we hear in the movie are like just the demo tracks that were on that synthesizer which is so goofy but the music so isn't bad throughout the movie it's not nothing exceptional but it's it's okay Gets the job done. This music is just obnoxious because they just turned on the sax setting or the saxophone setting on the synthesizer and we just like it. It is entitled The Witch of Popcorn. That, that this, track uh, is? Yep, that track is The Witch of Popcorn. Yeah, it is. Because the song titles are also going to be very specifically worded in very special ways. And so, yeah, the popcorn's just going to take him over mm -hmm. and he's pretty much going to drown in it a little bit, even though he's still breathing and spitting it out afterwards. Yeah. So apparently this was not his death. I don't think he, he did died. not turn yeah. green. So... Yeah, maybe she just wanted to keep him around as a little popcorn boy toy. And meanwhile, yeah, we're going to go back to the the Nana song is going to be playing yep. with uh, all of the, the villagers dancing around trying to force them to eat. And then we're just going to get that whole kind of final denouement third act in which the grandfather is going to come and try to save the day and, he and fail. Apparently manifests a Molotov cocktail, which he can do. And a fire extinguisher and gives it to his grandson and tells him, light the wick and throw that. I'll create a distraction with this. And I don't know how by this he means the fire extinguisher. I don't know how much more of a distraction that he thinks he can make with the fire extinguisher versus a Molotov cocktail. But that's the grandfather's plan and he's sticking by it. And I guess, yeah, if you spray it in two different directions, like you're yeah. just taking somebody out in this cloud of like kind of foamy whatever. But we do not get the Molotov cocktail throwing because they make it down the stairs and the preacher just plucks it out of their hands. Yeah. And walks about and points at the grandfather. And I, I, I'm looking at this quote on IMDb. He says, I order you with the sacred power of the magic stone and its lord. Go back. To hell! And this, and he says this, and it seems to knock Grandpa off his feet, and like he kind of collapses. He's like, oh, oh, oh. Joshua comes up and he says, Grandpa, are you really in hell? Grandfather says, Totally, kid. No, he says, No, but I know a trick that a friend of mine who went there taught me. Snaps his fingers, lightning hits the preacher, and he is engulfed in flames. That ends up being the distraction that the grandfather wanted to create. And the, the family runs outside. The father sees this guy on fire and turns and grabs the fire extinguisher. And one of the moments I love the documentary is he says, and I asked the director, how would I know that there's an, a fire extinguisher there? And the director who's there on set is like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, George. You grab fire extinguisher. That's what you do. It's like kind of like the, uh, the line from Ed Wood, you know, Movie making is not about the details. It's all about the big picture. Yeah, and this movie paints a, a very... It paints the biggest big picture possible. Picture? 
yeah, that <laughs> stuff happens, okay? Because goblins okay. that we call trolls. That happens. The family examines this burnt corpse, which I guess once burnt, the preacher reverted back to his native goblin form. And so finally it's revealed to everyone, the family that didn't believe Joshua, that goblins be here. There are goblins. And the family, they're freaking out. They see all the other goblins still in human form looking at them like, yeah, we want to eat you. We need to eat you. Or they're like looking at them menacingly. They back up into the house where they stole themselves away, which apparently now the people can't get into the house. The goblins cannot get into the house now. So, you know. Yeah. So there's going to be, you know, like a goblin people human fight showdown. It's yeah. A sort of around this time where the villagers are kind of lined up around the house and still encouraging them to eat things, kind mm. of like throwing a bag of edibles onto their porch, that it sort of dawned on me that in another universe, there's a Stephen King story in here somewhere. Yeah. Right? I mean, we've got this kind of paranoia of the small town and the people that are surrounded as the sort of outsiders coming in, this nefarious attack. And the grandfather is going to give the kid the pack that sort of says this is the most special weapon. Mm. Like, only take this out in times of true trouble, the rock bottom. And the kid is going to pull this out at a rock bottom moment. And it is, in fact, what is it? It's a double-decker bologna sandwich. Yeah, it is, because processed meat is going to go into his little system, and it's going to be so bad for it that it is just not even worth purifying his meat. The goblins want nothing to do with it. And so they coil back in horror, and they're going to be surrounding the what uh, the witch is going to look at and say, there it is, Stonehenge magic stone. <laughs> and that was just a really great, uh, once again, the stone magic stone. <laughs> And the uh, the trick to stopping this uh, goblin universe is just going to be for the entire family to put their hands upon the stone and concentrate. Concentrate on what? We don't know. We just but concentrate. they're concentrating. It's the same way they brought their uh, their grandfather back uh, when <laughs> earlier in the movie when they're still at the house. Joshua's like, "Yo, I've been I've been communicating with Grandpa. He can help us." And the daughter says. But how would we bring Grandfather here? With a seance, maybe? Like, yeah, that's true. They're going to have a seance. Which that's is, just going to be all, in there. And the seance just consists of them stand, sitting around a table of candles, all holding hands. And Joshua just keeps saying, come on, you guys, concentrate, concentrate. So whatever it was they concentrate on then to bring the Grandfather back, or just his voice anyway, we don't really see him, they concentrate on again when they're all in this church on the stone of Stonehenge, and that makes the magic go away. And maybe it's yeah. just the physical act of concentration itself. Yeah. So, in these abstract ways in which, no, the true power all along was love or goodness, this is the true powers of concentration as a skill. And this family's got it. They can concentrate the fuck out of this stone oh. and defeat the goblin minion king community, which is really just sort of a genocide against an entire species. You know, there had to be a way to live peacefully with great. the goblin kind that they just chose not to. 
Yeah, so they, they wipe out an entire community because that's what these assholes do. They just come in out of nowhere for a vacation, wipe out the town. Nobody, you know, I was going to say nobody invited them there in the first place. But I guess the family um, that they swapped houses did. Mm -hmm. So they're going to go back to their house. Yeah. And this is actually one of the most legitimately tinge of a chilling scene in the movie. Yeah. Because... The mother's going inside the shower, and it's just green chlorophyll all over mm -hmm. the place. So we were supposed to assume that his mother disintegrated in the shower because she was going to go take a shower. But then he runs all the way down to the kitchen, and her naked, vivisected torso is just lying on the yeah, kitchen table. We clearly see boobs. Yeah, there's. we finally get the boob shot in the horror yeah. movie. It's maybe not the one you want. Sort maybe of. it is. It's like, a, it's like a mannequin boob. It's like they took a store mannequin, painted it white, and then put the green goop all over it like the, the goblins could be ripping it out of. And like that's the topless shot. Yeah, and this kid is just going to scream mom yeah, <laughs> sort of really loudly. And you're like, this is an ending that for the time period sort of fits and, yeah. and works in that weird kind of dreamscape way that once again is a little bit Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a little bit Phantasm. It has that kind of, yeah, surrealist quality that you have not escaped this nightmare. There is no food that is safe to consume. So this might be the beginnings of some sort of goblin chlorophyll apocalypse. We don't know. There you go. Yeah, the last line of the movie is the goblin looking at the kid just going, Do you want some Joshua? Once again, it's... It's weirdly actually effective, because yeah. I, I could see a little bit of just sort of a more tangible 80s-style horror film in, in a couple of these scenes, and, and this yep. one was it. But, yeah, so <sighs> Troll 2, I guess we Ooh. will not know the answers of what sort of lies ahead for this family. If the, the goblins have attacked all of Utah now, set their mm -hmm. little traps, if they're reconvening elsewhere we almost had answers in an actual sequel that the original sort of film team was going to do and then later backed out of hmm. but there was a poll in terms of what it should be titled and what what would you title the troll 2 sequel <laughs> um i have to go with what is hinted at in the documentary which is troll 2 part 2 that is indeed the winner. Troll yeah. 2 Part 2. Yeah, that makes the most sense. So long as Claudio does exactly what he wants to do and makes something that to him is important, I think it would it would still be gold. Yeah, although the fact that Claudio Fragasso has remained so committed to the conviction of the earnest quality of his film means he has a shot at at least yeah. trying to film another earnest film. I think I'd so. still be there for Troll 2 Part 2. One thing that Claudio said in the documentary that I legit respect for this guy, he says, so they think I made a good movie. They think it's a bad movie. They think it's the worst movie. But you know what? You make the best movie or you make the worst movie. It doesn't matter. One way or another, you had an impact on somebody. Like, very nice. Like, well, good for you, you know? Like, you know, someone like Tom Wiseau kind of reneged on it. Like, oh, no, I made a bad movie on purpose or whatever like that. Claudio just says, the movie that you see is the movie I wanted to make. And some people may not like it or some people may think it's bad. I don't care. 
I don't care what you think of my movie. I made the movie I want to make. And you know what? This many people are watching it. It had an impact on them one way or another. No, I I respect that. Yeah. There's a part I'm, of I'm me sh- that legitimately does agree that in a way this is a great movie. I mean, there are different ways in which to qualify film goodness. Right? Mm-hmm. Is it technically competent? No. Um, no are no, there a sort of continuity errors? Absolutely. But if we are just assessing the quality of film on an entertainment and affect level, can we judge film on does it entertain? Does it elicit some sort of an emotional response? Is it memorable and impactful to an audience? Is every moment watchable? Like, absolutely fucking lootly and that's impressive in and of its own right because there are not too many films in which a person can say every single moment of this film is watchable and troll 2 is it is a delight i would every frame now i will not disagree that like every moment of this movie is watchable and hilarious but another thing that you do have to grade a film on is effectiveness or efficacy of intent people who made this movie had a clear intent they wanted to tell us being a vegetarian is bad because the woman who wrote this movie a lot of her friends became vegetarians at the same time and she hated that so she wanted to write a movie to say being a vegetarian is stupid well technically her intent and i'll disagree a little bit on whether or not we need to include motivation and intent in a sort of qualifier but her intent was just to excise some of her frustrations about her friends becoming vegetarians she's never claimed that she necessarily wanted to create a propaganda piece to turn people away from the vegetarian lifestyle just that she was a little pissed about her vegetarian friends and just wanted to write just sort of a film to get her frustration out there. And does it read as a film of somebody who doesn't have much respect for vegetarians? Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> and so that being said, but no, I mean, we often talk in the film about not necessarily knowing motivation because sometimes Right, we just don't have an understanding of the motivation of a piece, and so we have to separate motivation from effect. So there is an entire film school in which we have this kind of death of the author that does not consider motivation whatsoever. It's only the effect. So if you have a film, for instance, that might be super homophobic or super racist, even if they didn't intend for it to be, if the effect is there, that's what we judge it on, right? And so if a movie is not intentionally comedic, but it ends up being that way, right, can we judge it by that same criteria on its comedic value or its sort of affective value? There's a school that would say, yes, yes, you can. And in this instance, I'm one of them. I think this movie's great. It's so much fun. (laughs) So much fucking fun. I will defend it to the death. Not its technical prowess, but it's just sheer watchability. The people who enjoy this movie, a good portion of them are people like me (laughs) who just really like to fucking watch it. I, yes, I'm sadly in the same camp as you. I hate being in the same room as you on this one, but it is true. It is an extraordinarily watchable and rewatchable film over and over again. So I can't really, as far as its pain scale goes, I can't really say that it's that high. I think to someone who is who does not understand the concept of a so bad it's good movie, of enjoying ineptitude in action, 
this would be a very tough movie to watch. You know, if you're a very casual moviegoer, like, you know, yeah, yeah, I've been to see a few of the Marvel movies and, uh, you know, I, I like to, I watch Grey's Anatomy on TV sometimes, you know, if you show them this movie, they're not going to understand what the hell's going on. This kind of relates to a scene from Best Worst Movie, the documentary. There's a sequence in there where George is going to everyone in his town and telling them to come see the movie because they're going to do a screen of it for charity in, in his hometown. And so, like, he has all the receptionists at his dental clinic calling people up, telling them, you got to come here, see the movie. He's going door to door, handing out flyers. He's telling all of his patients to go see the movie. And so they do that. And there's a huge turnout. People go to see the movie. And we see some people walking out of the film. And it's just older people, you know, moms and dads. And they just have these looks on their faces of, what the fuck did I just watch? What the hell was the point of that? Not amused, not entertained, just kind of like pissed off that they lost 90 minutes of their lives to this, to them, incomprehensible film. Yeah, I mean, you have to be a certain type of cinematic masochist, right, to enjoy this film to the fervent level that some people do. But what I really loved in the documentary was the sort of build up to its cult beginnings. And you have this one kid who mentions people sometimes talk about Troll 2 like it's some kind of religion. And that makes total sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, kid. Yeah, you got it. And it's just this idea that there's a certain fervency that certain people experience with films like this. I mean, we do see it with The Room. We see it with Rocky Horror that sort of inspires people to create these midnight masses where they go and they pay homage and they sort of mecca pilgrimage to the theater, right, to watch together because there's something even better about seeing this in a group of like-minded people. And that fervency and that joy, I mean, it's not that far removed from some sort of like ecclesiastical experience for certain people. And so the fact that this film can inspire and induce that state of euphoria, it's just impressive in its own right. It's it's a magical, magical thing brought to um, us by the goblins. God, yeah. And the troll masks, or sorry, the goblin masks yeah. are great. I mean, there is something about that specific element of the production and only yeah. that element of the production that nails it. it I comes really, off well, really it, like this. As goofy as they the might goblins. look to someone who's not used to it, they do come off fairly well, like, in the final product. The documentary interviews, uh, I think, some of the little people who they use as as actors in the troll mask and the, in the goblin outfits, and I think some of them were like, I got there and they put a burlap sack on my head and then they glued some stuff to it. It was really weird. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't touch yeah. anything. It, yeah. it was bumping into stuff. Yeah. But the, the masks themselves have a very particular aesthetic that does kind of feel a little bit dated now in a certain way because they mm-hmm. are sort of made from the materials that were much more popular in the 80s and early 90s. A lot of sort of practical effects. But you know me, my love for the, the practical, tangible effects over CGI. And so there was... Of course. There's just something so tangible yeah. and something so beautiful about I think these masks. If they had been able to, you know, maybe light the masks better or film better, like had just spitballing here, but instead of three weeks, they they used three months to film the movie. Probably would have had a much different result, and you know, may have been like would be considered a much more technically competent film. Like if they had actually had the time to 
create a foggy scene. Like I said in the beginning, like the first shot of this movie, you're like, what the hell am I watching? Where you hear the narration, it was a very foggy day. And then we're in a very sunny forest that has a brush fire nearby. Had they actually been able to take the time to do something like that and then also light the, the goblin masks more dramatically or more atmospherically, you probably would have had a legitimately scary film on your hands. As it comes off now, it's just goofy. But still, the goblin masks, yeah, they do look pretty cool. I'll, I'll give them that no matter but what. But you wouldn't have had as memorable of a film if That's they true. had gotten it so right. Like, so what would, the, what would they have wanted? Would they have wanted to make a technically competent average film or an incompetent glorious film masterpiece that, will, that we're that still talking about yeah remember for years on end it's it's good for us it's a question of like if that's good for the filmmakers you know do you get work because you're so bad it's good film is famous well i mean it worked for tommy was so but sort of do you really think that had his film not resonated with audiences, that The Room would have gotten him more work? Or the fact that there's something what? a little bit magical about it? Because you're no, either a technically competent filmmaker room, or you're not. But here's, what I'm at, here's what I'm saying. Um, like, for instance, the uh, Con uh, Connie something, uh, Connie, who plays the daughter in the film, she is admitted, if she is recognized from this film, she doesn't get the job. Like when she's auditioning and people realize that she's the daughter from Troll 2, she does not get work. Like that is like guarantee. I'm not getting work if they know that I'm in Troll 2. So she's my point sad. being like Tom was so got more work because he took it on the road. He embraced, you know, the cult following to it. And even though like he kind of backtracked on what his intentions were in the film, he still was able to capitalize on the attitude towards the film and the guy makes bank off of the movie to this day. Like he sells the DVDs and the Blu-rays and the merchandise and there's no third party. All that money goes to Tommy. So he knew how to capitalize because Tommy Wiseau is a true American. Exactly. I'll say exactly. it right here The right truest now. of us all. He is the most American of all of us. That's Tommy who Wiseau. Claudia Furhasso really needed in this film. <laughs> it's the one thing that's missing from Troll 2 is Tommy Wiseau's presence. So I guess it? my point being here is that even though this movie is much more memorable to us for Claudio... I don't think a studio head is going to see this movie, no matter what its draw is, and say, yeah, let's give money to this guy and have him make a movie. Because maybe studio heads don't recognize this, but the, po the truth is you can't capture lightning in a bottle twice like this. You can't make another So Bad It's Good movie on purpose. No, and but th sometimes the numbers just talk to the studios. But in that's terms true. of, yeah, whether or not I would rather make a film that still touched people 30 years later, that they're still talking about, that they're still excited about, or direct a horror movie that's got decent reviews in 1986, but nobody's seen it since or cares about it since. Like, fuck yeah, I want to do Troll 2. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. I'm kind of like the grandfather, I guess, where like the guy who played the grandfather in the documentary. Oh. Um has this moment where he sort of talks about how he did not realize at the time that he was making a bad movie, oh, yeah. but that when he realized that, he got so fucking excited because he loves bad movies, and it is a highlight, a personal fulfillment that he has been in a bad film. And I'm like, I feel you, man. Like, I'm, I'm with you. I was really happy about that because the way they interviewed that guy, I, I feel bad, bad for him. Like, not really bad for him, but... 
he just kind of embraced the grim reality that is his life, where he's like, nope, never had any kids. Kind of just frittered away my life. But what is a life if not to be frittered away? Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of people embrace the grim reality. At damn. least he was one of the people in the movie who had a grasp on reality. So I there's, so. There was that going for him. And really... Kids don't necessarily fulfill the existential <laughs> hole in people's lives. So I'm not really sure that that's what was missing. He just uh, might have a closer no, grasp on no, existentialism. But, oh, but yeah, anyway, so your pain level, what would you pain you... level? I'd give it a three. I think that's just like if it was, if it, I kind of average it out on some factors. Like if it was just me watching this, I wouldn't, it'd be zero because this movie is not painful at all. It's so enjoyable to me. <laughs> but I average that out with. The average movie goer, kind of like the people I mentioned in the documentary who are just like, what the hell did I just watch that don't enjoy this? There's a, there's a crowd out there who would not get the same enjoyment out of the film that I and millions of other people have uh, received from this film. And that kind of brings up to a three just because I know there are some people who don't enjoy this sort of thing. Oh, yeah, that's fair. And I don't consider other people's realities outside of my own. And so... I, too, wore this a zero because it's pure delight. It's pure euphoria. And I agree that this is not for mainstream audience. There are people that will not like, get, or understand this movie. But I don't want to know those people. And they should not be listening to this podcast I anyway. really don't want to know you either. <laughs> so, yeah, no, this this movie is great. It's it's super fun. It's enjoyable every time I watch it. So there there was really no pain to be had here. Just just pure pleasure. Okay. Do we want to go so, through our, our top picks uh, really quick? Yeah, I guess the top, what do you think, three? Or do you want to I'll do top three. Five? I'll do okay. mine really. I'll do my top three really quick. I'll just like give you a give it to you in a minute here. Uh, number three is George Hardy slash Michael Waits. Uh, the guy was doing what he could with what he had, and the documentary really endeared him to me. He seems like just a honestly good guy. So he's like, okay, you know, you, you did what you could there, and he was like the only actor like trying to give a somewhat natural performance in it, even though that was going to be impossible in this film. My number two is Joshua, or you Joshua. know, Mike. Yeah, or like a little, you know, Michael, uh, Mike, Michael Paul Stevenson. Like I said, it's not, not a, a good child performance, but whatever is a good child performance. But that's just the fact the guy, like, years later took this as, like, the impetus to create a documentary about it and own up to, like, how horrible he felt his performance was. And, like, in the same way, at the same time, bring together all the other people from this movie and give it up to him. Uh, my number one, gotta give it up to... Credence, Lenora, Gugud, because, because, you know what? I'm gonna. I will admit, I was not the best actor, and I just appreciate when I see someone else completely failing in acting, giving it as their all, much as this person was doing twenty things when they needed to do one, and I, and honestly, when she didn't have the makeup on, I thought the actress was pretty hot. So. Yeah, I mean, she really was. And she like she shows up to kind of present the family with this welcome cake and kind of double head turns to the girl who's walking out and sort yeah. of says, like, she's very appetizing. And then the mother's like, I don't get what you mean. And then she's like, provocative. And That's right, yeah. Sort of, she's really what? interested. She is thirsty for it. Damn, and yeah. I'm like, you know what? I want it. 
I, I looked her up and uh, Deborah Reed, uh, she didn't do anything else. She like apparently worked makeup on Dumb and Dumber. Of, Interesting. Of like that's like one makeup cred that she has. And as far as I could tell, I think she was she worked realty in Utah because her other credits under self is for like power in home buying, which is apparently some sort of corporate promotional video that she did uh for realtors in Utah. Like and mm. she is like she does appear in Best Worst Movie. Uh she never says anything. Uh she's like I think the only thing that she's in is like uh when they have like the whole cast together giving a QA at some convention. It's like the QA where like they have to throw Claudio out because he keeps yelling at them. I have to give it up to the friends in my what? third slot. I just really liked all of the friends. The yellow shirt dude in particular, he's going to do a lot of face work. He's going to do a lot of stretching. Do my face work, you know? He is, yeah, he's just really fun to watch. And of course, Arnold brings us one of the greatest quotes of all time. And <laughs> the other guy is in the popcorn scene. So really, all of my favorite things in this movie Are tend to have the friends involved in them. So I think they... Aliens uh, should just... They don't get the told, love that they should. Should have just told Connie, like, no, I'm not doing this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stick with my friends, because bros before hoes. Yeah, I and mean... these some good bros. The bros were the, the clear choice there. They were the winners. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, I'm going to have to go with Margot Prey. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. There is something about her that I, yeah, I, I watch her. Image, it's chilling. I, I love the image of a drug cocktail that is every drug from a Brett Easton Ellis novel. <laughs> yeah, and that is Margot Prey in this movie. And... She went full Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> Every decision is fascinating because it's not a decision. She'll even say in the documentary that she felt that it was such a natural movie to act in because she would just say and do things That's, as she would have said and done yeah, them. Yeah, she just said, like, it was just me saying those things, which is honestly and even I was more like, terrifying. Really? Yeah. So it, but I could kind of tell that at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. she, is, she is in a haunting alien world and I'm digging it. And then number one is actually kind of interesting considering what you had to say about uh, it earlier, but the music supervisor. Oh, nice. <laughs> Gets a shout out number one. I'm the music it. in this film is legitimately good sometimes. Like the the opening theme, like when we get like the, the goes over the credits, like when the goblins are just running around chasing Peter or whatever. It's it's a legit good track. Even yeah. though, like, they, they admit, like, this was made on cheap, relatively cheap equipment, but they still utilize the synthesizer fairly well. Yeah, and it's not necessarily even the quality. It's the whole atmosphere. It's the mm -hmm. necessity that, yeah. uh, the necessary role that it plays in the film. And then, more than anything, it is the track names. So I, I have them, but I'm just okay, going to read yeah. them very quickly because it really just sums up the movie, too, all in a track list. So we start out with Like an Emerald Green. Okay. Then Goblins Are Coming, Wrapped huh. in Dreams, Through the Mirror, Green Nightmare, Black Sense of the Fear, Desperate Sprint in Forest, The Witch of Popcorn, Nana -na Song, Shadow in the House, A Green Pottage, They Are Not Farmers, Whale of Terror, Can I Help You, 
eaten like green sauce, green jam sandwich, Tennessee Rhodes. This is so many songs. Yeah. The Welcome Cake of Prudence. <laughs> Grandpa Fairy Tales. So not Grandpa's Fairy Tales, just Grandpa Fairy Tales. Carousel of Vegetables. Do You Want Some, Joshua? Don't Eat Green Food. Tomorrow Nightmare. The Horror of It All. And Goblin's World. And there's just in that track list some beat poetry. <laughs> you could like read those off and like just have someone like kind of doing the drums lightly, like. Then, Goblin's World. Blacksons of the Fear. So yeah, it's a it's a Grandpa's thing. Grandpa's Fairy and Tales. Yeah. I'm I'm here for it. I don't know yes. this. <laughs> um, I was actually trying to describe Troll 2 to, to someone during a, a game night that we were having because I just mentioned that I was watching it the next day for the podcast. Yeah. And I read them this track list. And then unrelatedly, I asked, what should we put on as a playlist while, you know, we, we played some games? And their response was, well, the Troll 2 soundtrack That's now. Obviously. <laughs> so I looked it up there. It is all on YouTube. And we just listened to this Troll 2 soundtrack wow. while we were That's just special. sort of doing some other stuff. And so I, I introduced this to a whole crop of people that had never seen the movie. But uh, I, I subjected them to this playlist. And it delivered. Like the film. Wow. The soundtrack delivers. So would you recommend this movie to a friend? Sounds yes. like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No hesitation. Yes, I don't care who the friend is. If they don't, I, I would, I would use this to like weed out friends. This if they is, don't like this movie, this you can't test. be my friend. Yeah. Um, and then I would also recommend following it up with the 2009 documentary. That it was absolutely. a really nice compliment. To if anything, like they, they're they're a great back to back viewing, and they're both nine minutes, so you can knock knock it out in an evening really quickly. So yeah, so there we go. Full full seal of cruelty appeal and approval. I I'm think so too, but trying to remember how we even safe word out of this because I got I just gotta do it. I gotta say it. You need method to go practice acting. your method, method acting. Method acting, no more. <laughs> method acting. <laughs> All right, Elliot. What kind of idiotic joke is this? <sighs> you scared the shit out of me. I'm the victim of a nocturnal rapture. I have to release my lowest instincts with a woman. Release your instincts in the bathroom. Are you nuts? You trying to turn me into a homo? Wouldn't it be too hard? If my father discovers you here, he'd cut off your little nuts and eat them. He can't stand you. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!